Venture capital investing requires an understanding of market dynamics, technology, and finance. There's also an element of human nature. Consumer trends can make or break the viability of a new product. And early-stage venture investing is always a bet on a small team or individual founder. Early-stage investments are usually into companies that have not found perfect traction with their product. Judging the worth of an early-stage investment means judging the likelihood that the founders can make their vision a reality. Venture Stories is a podcast that explores the wide spectrum of ideas that go into venture investing. Shows include two-person interviews on economics, social networking, food technology, cryptocurrencies, and consumer psychology. Eric Torenberg is a co-founder and partner of Village Global, which is an early-stage venture capital firm, and he's also the host of Venture Stories. Venture Stories is a show that I have enjoyed since it came out, and I'm happy to have Eric on the show to discuss investing, media, and the kinds of new technology companies that are being created today. It's a wide-ranging discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Eric Tornberg, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You started Village Global two years ago. What were the specific gaps in the fundraising ecosystem that you saw as opportunities to close? You know, I had this tweet last night, as many good lines begin. It's called venture capital, and yet all venture capital firms operate basically as if they're central planners. It's five people on Sand Hill Road. Now, some of them moved to San Francisco, making investment decisions across all sectors, all geos, and in, in all people. So the joke was venture capital, more like venture Soviet Russia. Why do you know venture capitalists who believe in capitalism, who believe in markets, have this sort of top-down, centrally planning view of how they do their own business? One reason is that it used to be the case where you could literally have an investor who covered the entire internet sector. And what's happened is we've had an explosion of sort of new subsectors and subsectors within those subsectors, explosion of complexity. Things have gotten more and more complex so that you need more and more expertise and venture has not adjusted accordingly. So on multiple fronts, we realized we wanted to put markets in, in venture. And so we wanted to, instead of just having five people, masters of the universe, you know, making all investment decisions where they can't possibly have expertise in every sector, possibly have connections in every geo, possibly have the best insight in every person. How could we, through markets, through incentivizing people via carry, incentivize dozens and dozens and potentially hundreds of people to make investment decisions on our behalf? to source companies, to select companies, and to support companies on our behalf and create a true market for venture capital. That was what we, were, what we decided to do. Can you describe how the mechanics of that, what are the implementation details of making that work? Sure. On a high level, we find founders and angel investors who have expertise in different sectors who are connected in specific company mafias or run local geos that we're excited about. And we say, hey, if we make an investment together, or we'll give some pool of capital directly, we will refer some of the carry that we receive goes directly to you. So we ask them that they put some skin in the game, but allows them to have basically free upside in, in addition to the investments that they are making in exchange for the work that they do. So some source companies for us will select and then support, and they get some carry for that. Some will source a company and say, hey, Sheil Manat, you're a, you know expert 
in fintech and emerging markets. We'll send it to him. He'll decide for us. We'll give him some carry for that. And then there's some, Jared Seifer, for example, who's running a company that automates FDA compliance. He's an expert in helping companies think about the FDA. Source the company, we'll invest the company. We'll send it to him. He'll help them with their FDA compliance. We'll give him some carry for that. And there are some people who do all the above. And that, that that's the sort of unicorns. So that, that's how we think about it. And does that lead to an overwhelming amount of deals that are coming in? Is there something that you have to build? Or how do you manage the influx of deals from that large network? It's an amazing question, because historically, VC has been an anti-network effects business. The more deals that you make, the worse your portfolio would be, in theory, because each partner's time is limited, and so forth. They cannot have the same investment judgment across a wide number of deals or have time to support a wide number of companies. And that's why VC has been an anti-network effects business. Now, YC totally changed the game. YC, you know, people like to put down firms like 500 startups. They say it's spray and pray. Yet no one says it's about YC. YC does, I mean, who does more deals in venture than YC? YC does 400 deals a year. YC is the only firm, and we think we're now getting into this firm, that's able to have a networks effects business. And the way YC does it is by peer-to-peer community. They, th- they say effectively, who's the most helpful person to help your business? Founders, not necessarily other investors. And so we're going to put you in this concentrated experience where other founders are going to give you advice and help introduce you to customers, be your customers, and provide that sort of emotional support that you might get from, a, from an investment partner. So that's how they made VC network effects business. Now they have the opportunity of or benefit of having, you know, 15 years of founders go through their program. So if you're trying to do that from scratch, hey, you don't have hundreds of companies to do that. So what we did is we said we're going to sort of artificially create that that community, that network by incentivizing out the gate. So yes, we have many dozens of network leaders that support specific companies. We have 180 companies. And what we say is each company has a one-to-one, either a network leader or a partner associated with them. And that's how we're able to pick companies at scale. Because yeah, if it was you know, Eric Tornberg picking 180 companies, his decision, he, he can't literally do that. My decision-making would be, would be compromised. But if you say each network leader is what we call them, gets to do two or three deals a year, it's people they know well, it's sectors they know well. You can maintain quality at scale, both on the picking side and then also on the supporting side in terms of having bodies who have expertise, who can spend time with companies. That's why we, we call it a market or a marketplace of, of advisors, of, of investors, and, and of companies, founders. One of the main inspirations from Village Global is, from what I can tell, the the some of the models of YC, at least in terms of the volume and the recognition of network effects and the recognition of dramatic increase in the number of people who could potentially start companies. Therefore, you want to increase the, the nodes that you have out there that are searching through these potential individuals. The other venture firm that I see you as somewhat related to is A16Z because yeah. they pioneered the focus on media. And this is certainly part of your work with Venture Stories, which is a podcast that I am a pretty big fan of because you, you really explore a lot of different subjects in Venture Stories and you have quite a prolific output. What is the relationship between media and venture capital? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I want, I want to close at another point to the YC thing, and then I'll get to Andreessen. Well, YC has also proven that we're, and I just want to give YC their due. They've really innovated and pioneered, and, and we look up to them a lot, and we're excited to work with them a bunch, even though as we, as we compete at the same time. YC pioneered is thinking about venture as a platform and as a franchise. You know, Warren Buffett says something along the lines of, I want to invest in business, a business as a franchise when you could replace the, the management with you know, terrible management and it'd still be strong. And now people who run YC are fantastic, but you know, they lost Paul Graham, didn't miss a beat. They lose Sam Altman, didn't miss a beat. They can lose Michael Seibel, won't miss a beat. They've really built an institution that outlasts any individual partner. If you, you know, take Bill Gurley at a benchmark, now benchmark has done a great job replacing too, but succession is a lot harder. Venture is still very much a craft and I admire YC for turning into a product uh, and a platform and, and truly a franchise. A16Z has also pioneered a bunch of different things. I mean, the whole services model, we're trying to do that in a decentralized way, but they do it in a very centralized way, by in, in a great way, hiring over 100 people on staff. And they, they, they really pioneered this idea that we take a lot 10 years later, is it's a very crowded market. And so to gain the hearts and minds of a founder, you need to do something different and you need to be loud. So their, their differentiation was their centralized services model. For us, it's two things. It's this decentralized model. It's also our, our luminaries who we've been fortunate to, to work with and have on board as not only LPs, but people who lend their brand and time in addition to their, their capital. And then in terms of media, hey, you know, thousands of, of seed firms, how do we get attention? Let's win the hearts and minds of a founder. I've been doing this podcast ever since the product on days. I appreciate your kind words about it. We're, we're a generalist firm. We're trying to attract founders of, of all stripes and all sectors. And my goal with the podcast is to sort of create a catalog of defining episodes in, in different sectors. So it's sort of a buffet, all, all you can eat. But for people who are fascinated to go deep on you sort of emerging fintech or logistics or, or food tech, I want this to be the best episode for that sector. And it also helps us source our network leaders who are always looking for experts. So, so it's synergistic across a number of different fronts. And in Venture Stories, you're not only exploring these business sectors through the explicit lens of business and how are you building this particular business, but there's also the framing of the world in the eyes of these different political, economic, philosophical thinkers that I think in many ways are kind of related to, to the world of the blogosphere or the Twitter sphere or just whatever is the cutting edge of of ideas and writing and editorialism that is going on across the world. I'm wondering what you see as the connection between these provocative or fresh ideas and the business sector. Because it's clear that in Silicon Valley, there is some kind of mixing of those two categories, the category of business and the category of these provocative philosophical or editorial or whatever you want to call them, blogosphere ideas. What do you see as the overlap or the foment between those two areas? A few things. So one is that I think technologists have paid too little attention to not just politics, but really to economics, the outside world. And I think that is set them back in two ways. One, 
it puts them on the defensive. And so they don't realize what's what's informing the tech clash or what's informing when CEOs are getting fired left and right or being challenged or when there's just sort of greater animosity towards technology. They, they don't understand. They're not getting ahead of it. They're not defending themselves in, in proper ways to truly understand the concerns. So I, I think one in terms of we want to, I think being pro-technology is being pro-civilizational, pro-civilization. And so it's important that we wrestle with these ideas to understand where the critiques are coming from, where they are, where there's credence to it, where there's not credence to it and contributing in that conversation. So I, I see myself as, as trying to, to do that. But then also, just in terms of being a better investor, I think early on in my investor career, I was really focused on, you know, where are the great founders? How do I find them before anyone else? How do I create products and services that allow me to do that at scale? And I still do that today. That's my thesis for why Product Home was such a valuable tool for me as an early investor. That's why I started On Deck, which is a community for people who are looking to start or join their next thing. I said, hey, I'm not going to compete with Bill Gurley on how to evaluate the best you know, ride-sharing company, or I'm not going to compete with Josh Koppelman in terms of being on the board of an early seed company in terms of adding value as an individual. But how can I build products and services that really give me an unfair advantage, whether it's helping people find a co-founder or helping people find a customer? or whatever it is. So I'm talking about this is what set me apart in my early investor career, which I still am. But in terms of now, I have wrestled with ideas in in The Sovereign Individual, which is a great book, or Non-Zero, which is another book. These sort of economic ideas are really about the future. Where is the world heading? And where does that want lead me to spend more time in things like homeschool, things like mental health, things like i mean education more broadly the future of of labor it's important to to know history it's important to know economics it's important to know politics to become a, a better investor when you get steeped in these philosophical ideas and the ideas that are floating around twitter the ideas that are floating around the podcast world or the intellectual dark whatever does it ever feel alienating in a sense because that world can be very engrossing yeah and you can get a sense that this is truly the world that we live in but then you go home for thanksgiving the rest of the people at thanksgiving are not living in that world yeah do you ever get a sense of alienation it's interesting i i, I certainly get disoriented i mean i remember product hunt 2014 2015 we were darlings of the technology world. We were loved by the by the media, by, by journalists. And we were fundamentally, we were pro-maker, pro-tech. I don't think a product hunt could take off in the same way that it did in 2014, 2015, because the environment is too hostile. People are upset that Donald Trump is, is president. People blame technology, whether rightly or, or wrongly. People blame startups for doing so. And so a startup like Product Hunt that is helping other startups exist you know, I think it could thrive today, but it wouldn't be as universally celebrated because people fundamentally have increasingly anti-tech tendencies. So that to me is disorienting in terms of, you know, initially, where did it come from? And I've you know, been trying to spend some time to, to figure that out. Where does podcasting fit in the lineage of books, TVs, radio, film, what role is podcasting serving as a media format? Marshall McLuhan is a great media theorist, and he has this great concept of hot and cold mediums. And Alex Danko did this really 
fantastic summary on, on, on his blog, and you definitely check out Alex Stanko's work. And I believe he called channeling Marshall McLuhan audio a cold medium. And I think I'm trying to remember exactly what this distinctions meant. Other, than, but I remember the specification of audio was that it's such an intimate medium even though it's weird because you can't see the person. You would think that video is more of an intimate medium, but there are people who've listened to my podcast and I've never met them, but they've felt like close friends my, my whole life when, when they meet me and I feel the same way. If, if you listen to my podcast and tell me you love it, that that is a bigger compliment than any other business or, or company I've been a part of. There's something about audio that's just such a raw, intimate medium where you can listen to someone for two or three hours. I mean, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, all these people have proven, Eric Weinstein, that people want higher level of conversation and they're they're craving it. I think that podcasting is something that anyone can do. I encourage people to go, the more niche, the better. Have the conversations that only you can have. I think about it as sort of collaborative self-discovery, thinking out loud, learning out loud. We're sort of seeing this this web of people who keep going on the same podcast as, as different guests, but there's sort of this overlapping, intersecting sort of Venn diagram of different topics and, and different areas. I mean, the intellectual dark web, the, the native medium for it is the podcast, right? It, it's right. Joe Rogan's podcast. It's, it's Sam Harris's podcast. From a venture perspective, in China, it's already a huge business today. The question in, in the US is, hey, is is Apple going to win that? Is Spotify going to win that? You know, we saw Gimlet be sold to Spotify for 300, I think Anchor for just under that. It'll be interesting to see. I'm not making any podcast bets yet, but I, I know that the, the value created by podcasts is incredible and, and only growing. Do you have any thesis there? Or are you just literally not going to make any any bets, even in weeks, weekly spirited ways? I love the Breaker team. I love what Breaker's doing. I use Breaker. I listen to it you know, three times a day when I listen to podcasts. I think there's opportunity to create sort of Pandora for podcasts, there's opportunity to create podcast playlists. There's opportunity to create podcast snippets. I've long wanted to create a better Quora by, or someone to create a better Quora by taking all the Q and A's that have been on these fantastic podcasts and transcribing them and putting them into either a rap genius or a Quora Q and A like format. There's so much wisdom that is said on podcasts that is not transcribed onto the internet. And I think you could compete with Quora or Quora should, should just do this. That's something that I would, I would like to see. Do you have a sense as to why people are listening to podcasts? Is it to actually learn or is it for a sense of company? I've met so many people who've said, I used to listen to music, but now I listen to podcasts. And there's something special about that because music is one of the most intimate forms of connection. People experience deep forms of meaning through music and, and aliveness. And I think podcasts, there's something about podcasts that's even stronger for, for some people, where the bonus is it makes you feel smart, like you're getting smarter. There's a sort of deep, you know, emotional resonance. We, we all want to be voyeurs. We all want to be in the fly on the wall of that fascinating conversation. I mean, it, it's sort of an incredible world. Today, you can listen to experts, literally world experts in any topic, talk about your favorite topic and listen at 2x speed at any time. Now, I sort of joke that the barrier for me to get coffee with a friend is wanting to do that over listening to Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel talk about the future of our economy. That's a pretty high bar. <laughs> I can listen to the smartest people on my favorite topic at, at any given time, and I'm choosing to have a conversation with you. Well, how many times are you going to listen to that episode? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. But there, there's a lot of uh, Eric Weinstein episodes out there. This is infinite pod, interesting podcast one, one can listen to, and it's only getting bigger. It's interesting you say that, because I reach podcast uh, inbox zero. 
on a regular basis, but I guess you don't. No, no, no. I, well, I got to send you. I, I find podcasts. I found Sean Carroll's podcast the other day. I said, okay, here's another 80 I'm going to listen to. I find, really? Yeah. After on is Rob Reed's, but I, mean, I keep finding these niche podcasts. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go one by one into this one. Coming back to venture, some investors have a thesis that the opportunities in pure software companies are drying up. And now the only opportunity is in quote, hard tech companies. Do you have any belief in that thesis, the idea that we can't invest in CRMs and analytics software anymore? Now we need to just look at hardware and drones and whatever, building neighborhoods or something. I don't think that's right. But I think I think it's wrong, but it's wrong in an interesting way, or, and it, it, there's some directional truth to it. If we think about how software has eaten the world to date, in the first sort of phase of software eating the world, we saw things like you know Uber and Airbnb and eBay, and you creating marketplaces on of all different types. I, I actually think markets eating the world is a more proper representation of what software is doing. It's creating information markets. It's creating rating systems, ways to rate the raters, etc. I, I think the second phase, and this is what people are talking about, is is you know software ate the virtual world. Now it's going to eat the physical world, and so you know industries that were not software driven before. We're sitting here in a WeWork. You know real estate transportation, logistics, heavy insurance, heavy, heavy industry, software is going to eat that. And Ben Thompson had this great post, Neither Knew, that talked about how they're not even software companies, they're more tech-enabled companies, and they have different different trends. And I, But I think the third phase is it will be back to software, and it's going to be create markets in things that didn't even exist prior. So I'm excited about prediction markets, which is, are trying to do what Bitcoin did for money, they're trying to do for truth. I think those things totally don't exist right now, or they exist actually in gambling, i.e. in basketball. If, I'm, if I want to take a look at who's going to win tonight, the Knicks or the, say the Clippers, and I look at the odds... That's actually a pretty good indicator of what's likely to happen because it harnesses the wisdom of the crowds. I'm super excited for that to exist in a better capacity in politics. It could be a 21st century polling company, but also in, in health insurance, also in, you know, should we hire the CEO or, or fire this person or should we do X? I'm, I'm just really excited for platforms that create the, the sort of enable the, the wisdom of the crowds. I'm excited about various different software use cases that require changes in in behavior. Uh, I'm excited about Yelp for people. I'm excited about stock markets for people. Obviously, these have some scary implications, but there's a lot of information that's in people's heads that's really valuable that if it was on the internet would unlock a, a ton more value. I think we're just seeing the beginning in terms of education being put online. It's still online in a very mass way, but we're going to see it in a very personalized way. I think we're going to see LinkedIn unbundled and a ton more professional networks, niche networks created because of it. We're going to see lots of new ways of doing consumer social and connecting to people. I think software is, is just beginning. And I think software is eating the real world in a way that makes hardware you know, and harder companies uh, more exciting than they were. We did have Yelp for people, didn't we? Was, didn't it, wasn't it too taboo and they had to shut it down or something? Yeah, in the same way that we had a lot of social networks and, and didn't work because people didn't want to put their photos on the internet. So yeah, I think there was PayPal or there's, there's a lot of people yeah. trying to do, but someone will figure out the right way for it to be positive for society and for people to, to be excited about it. Okay, here's another thing that may or may not be taboo in the future. The amount of surveillance technology that can be taken off the shelf and be used for high utility purposes, facial recognition, for example. It's fairly taboo. 
today. The idea that you could use facial recognition very heavily for high utility purposes. I just use that as an example of a taboo that could change over time and could generate significant value and could be a foment for new companies. Are there any other taboos that you think could change over time and be fertile ground for new startups? Well, the two that I brought up are, in, are, are taboos for sure. Yelp for people and stock markets for people. The idea of shorting people is definitely a taboo. In, in my version, you would only long people. You know, ruining reputations is a taboo. But I, I think we'll build new technologies that allow for pseudonymous identities, that allow people to rebuild identities, have multiple identities, so that the cost of having you know a negative score on something won't be as high, won't be as existential. You know, you don't put all of your money in one bank account. I think it's weird that you put all of your reputation in one name. So I think. Those are you know, we'll create new technologies to to dismount all those taboos. But Mark Andreessen had this had this phrase. He said, "There's no bad ideas; they're just too early." Sequoia invested in WebVan in in 1998. You know, people invested in Pets.com in 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 late 90s. People said that was dumb. 20 years later, multi-billion dollar companies built you know in Instacart and in uh, Chewy. With taboos, I think there's a lot on the gene editing side that I won't even pretend to know enough about to to speak on. But I think a lot that today looks very weird, i.e you know, doing things like, you know, preventing your kid from having autism to being deaf to, you know, certain a lot of questions around that. I think there are big taboos around charter cities, startup societies that will compete with governments at some point. I mean, it's worth thinking like the phrase software eating the world, it doesn't stop at the digital world. It doesn't stop at the real world. It's going down to the quantum level of what it is to, to be a person. And so, I tend to be a pro technologist. We just need to do it in, in the right way and, and be smart about it. And yeah, it's an exciting, but it's also a scary world ahead of us. How widely applicable is the idea of income sharing agreements? Income sharing agreements are well hyped, but not practiced much yet. There's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built. And that is an idea that's that's very taboo. That's that I've gotten the most flack on Twitter for my my thoughts on in, income share agreements because and five years ago, this wasn't even possible. P- people equate it with slavery, basically, or indentured servitude, not knowing that often it's taking the place of debt, which is which is even worse for for people, certainly college students, in that income share agreements, to the extent that they hurt anybody, it hurts people who are making a lot of money. And it really helps unlock a ton of opportunities for people who wouldn't have had them otherwise. And so there are startups like Lambda School that are enabling more and more people to have an education by, by offering income share agreements. But there are people that are trying to do really interesting experiments. If you could imagine a, a Kickstarter for people where you can not back people just based on their project, but back people who want to say, hey, I want to learn this boot camp, or I want to release this album, or I want to do have XYZ experience, You know, would you fund me so, so I can do that? And then receive a share of the profits. If you imagine having a board of directors say, hey, uh, Jeffrey, be, be an advisor, meet with me, you know, four times a year for the next three years, help me with this project. And if I am very successful, you'll receive some in the proceeds. What I like about income share agreements is I, I, I love the idea of lining incentives so that we encourage more people to really feel interconnected and intertwined. There are lots of ways to do that, but economic agreements are one of them. I've invested in a lot of founders. I feel a tie with them that if they needed to stay on my couch, I would let them do that. And I want other people to, to feel that same sort of tie with, peop- with people outside of their, their family or, or even friend networks. Do venture capitalists spend too much time on Twitter? 
I think if you're a venture capitalist, you either want to go all in on Twitter or not at all. <laughs> there, there is a to be or not to be. Can you elaborate sure. on that? So I think venture is a top of mind game in, in many ways. A lot of venture is a commodity. People like to talk about adding value, but there's a lot of venture capitalists who, who add great value. And so how are you separating yourself from, from the pack. And sometimes it's really just being who's the first go-to person you go to and where do people spend a lot of their free time on Twitter. <laughs> and so if you can be in the hearts and minds of, of other founders and other investors, if you have interesting ideas on how to build companies or how venture capital works, or really just sharing authentic stories about yourself, that can be a way to scale being in front of a, of a lot of people. So it's worth doing if you can do it really well. You spent some time building a rap battle company, right? Rap, yeah. Rap.fm. Why didn't that business work out? Yeah, so many reasons. Oh my God. First, let me, let me get back to Twitter. One thing I also want to add is that I think the parody VC accounts, well, <laughs> well I think they are, are hilarious. They are hilarious. <laughs> At least the early ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got played out quickly. <laughs> yeah. The irony there is, is they themselves want to be VCs. I guess it's funny and VCs sh should be able to laugh at themselves, but I think we are facing real anti-tech sentiment. And I think, I think you want to be on the side of the builders. You want to be on the side of people. Now, VCs aren't the builders, but they're supporting the builders. And so I think that if, if you want to see better VC behavior, you know, call out the ones who are, who are doing great and you know, come join the game, be, be one yourself. I think laughs are good and let's, let's, let's laugh at ourselves always. But for the ones in which it's done out of spite, I encourage you to, you know, there's this Steve Jobs quote, what does he say? Something like, hey, do you want to sell sugar water? Or do you want to change the world? Do you want to have a parody VC account or do you want to change the world? Like put all that creativity and energy and humor into something really constructive. Not to, you know, get on my high horse or whatever. You do, you're, doing, <laughs> you're doing great work, but I just want to say that. Rap FM, why didn't it work out? Oh man, so many reasons. Well, the smart thing to say is the, or the charitable thing to say is we were too early. We were ahead of our time. <laughs> of course, no live video thing is, is taken off. HQ Trivia took off for a bit, and then who knows what's going on with it now. Meerkat took off. Who knows what's going on with it now. House Party took off. I've freestyle rapped on all these platforms. <laughs> I'm still, it's still my long-term dream to build Rapt FM back. I, I, in fact, I invested in a company recently that is incorporating live video into, into, their, into their offerings. Rapt FM failed for a lot of reasons, one of which were execution. It was my first company, a lot of lessons learned, but also I thought that I had this slogan internally of if you can walk, you can dance. If you can talk, you can freestyle, but it's not true. <laughs> or, or not a lot of people want it, want to freestyle. There's still a lot, a lot of cultural barriers to getting them to, to try. So the market was, wasn't big enough and it isn't, you know, it isn't an audience that has a ton of money to spend. So it was a niche business. We ran it for three years, learned a ton, had the most fun of my life. And maybe today it could be a lot bigger, but music is a game I've left. I remember we were talking to a very famous artist, one of the most famous rappers in the world, and he was considering getting involved in a tech company. It might've been Pinterest, might've been something else. And he was saying he couldn't, or his manager was saying, hey, usually all these companies pay us to be a part of it. I just can't imagine why I would pay another company to get equity in it. Usually they, they give it free or, or they pay us. And the, the tech person on the other line said, Pinterest is bigger than your entire industry. Like music is is small potatoes, and it, and it's monopoly, and it's highly regulated, and and it's it's really hard to to make work. So I, music is a game I've left from a venture perspective, but as a fan and as a hobbyist, I'm still very much in the freestyle game. And I like to joke that tech is just uh, is just really so I can support my rap dreams. <laughs> what can entrepreneurs learn from rappers, and vice versa? 
So I think we were talking earlier about how it's crowded market in, in, in many respects. And I would think what rappers know how to do is make a splash. I think they they intuitively understand what resonates with their with their audience. They build things people want and they they're always talking to their talking to their users and they're always mixing it up. I mean, you look at Tyler the Creator's Twitter, you look at Lil Nas X. I mean, these these people are are marketing geniuses. They don't play by the rules, they they create new rules. And so, I think if you're trying to learn marketing, if you're trying to learn distribution, they're always they're always on the newest distribution channels, by the way. They're always trying the new things. They sort of intuitively get a sense for for culture and and what resonates with a truly authentic voice. And and they take a position that is controversial. They're willing to have haters in order to have lovers. And that's a thing that a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to do is in order to have lovers, you, need, you often need to have some haters. Now, you don't want to be pointlessly controversial or else that, that won't be sustainable. But if you, you know, be known for something or be known for nothing, and rappers often stand for things. I think what rappers can learn from entrepreneurs is rappers should have the same deal with labels that entrepreneurs have with venture capitalists. Whereas entrepreneurs own most of the company, they get some money, but they're still able to, you know, be the owner of the company early on and be able to set the decisions and they truly become, you know, run and guide that that entire process and I think rappers for an artist for too long have been swindled giving up their their masters, most of their rights and and most of the equity or most of the upside because they want the big cash payout on the upfront. In technology you get rich on on equity, not on salary or VC you get rich on carry, not on salary fees. I think too, in music, the labels have gotten way richer than the artists. And I think the artists can take a page out of the entrepreneur playbook in reorienting that relationship. Do you know to what extent the music industry has been impacted by streaming in the same way that the film industry was impacted by Netflix and Amazon in the sense that now you have all this free capital flowing into the welcoming arms of the creators in in the world of film and TV production. Has that happened in the streaming world or is it still just an anemic stream of cash and or is music even bottlenecked by cash in the same way? Music is bottlenecked by by other things, which is basically the main thing is that the main three labels own the catalogs. And so for music, unlike news, old stuff is is really valuable people listen to most mostly old stuff and once you give it away you you can never get it back see you know Taylor Swift's trying to sue or you know get mad at Scooter Braun on on Twitter and Elizabeth Warren weighing in etc and so <laughs> I didn't see that <laughs> yeah it's pretty funny she was saying down with private equity so music suffers from the like we're going to need generations to pass before we can break up the monopoly because they they have proprietary rights to the most valuable catalogs. In news, for example, you know, there's more valuable news created every day and yesterday's news is old news, let alone, you know, the Beatles 1960 version version of news. And so people who create new things can receive all of the the profits that that come from that and don't have to pay back royalties and not just individuals sort of equivalent of streamers, publishers, etc. But Spotify is partly owned by the labels. They have to pay back the labels. It's really very unfair monopoly that's going to take artists like Macklemore or like sort of people who are willing to say, hey, I'm going to own the masters of my music. And so when the my music 40 years from now is even bigger than it is today, 
I'm going to be receiving that upside, not, not this label. And I think there's opportunity for a new label, maybe not now, maybe in a decade or so, if not sooner, that says, hey, it's been unfair for too long. We're going to do it differently. And I think that's really going to resonate with artists. In the software world and in the, the film and television world, you have really big teams producing these creative artifacts. In the music world, it's still frequently just like teams of two to three to four people. I mean, maybe you have you know a team of six or 10 sound engineers that are polishing the final master. But my sense is that in the studio, it's still just like a couple people. Why is that? Why have we not seen the scaling of the music production process to involve more people? Implicit in your question is a little bit this idea that perhaps they should scale or perhaps they would be returns to scale. And I wonder if that's actually something that other worlds can learn from from the music world. In technology, we're certainly seeing the power of smaller teams. Instagram sold when they were 11 people. You know, Jeff Bezos has this quote around you know, two pizzas teams. He likes teams that could sit around you know, a table of, of two pizzas. Or smaller teams have greater authentic voice, have less compromise of, of original vision. And when it comes to making music, that is not like, you know, an assembly line or, or it's the furthest thing away from sort of this efficient logistical process. It's really about the authenticity of someone's voice, of someone's message. And to the extent that you can ha- not have it compromised at all, if you have two people and it's it's an artist and it's a producer who's really just helped channeling that vision, the more cooks in the kitchen, you could sacrifice that vision. And so I'm, I'm not an expert at the music making process, but I think that that is actually something that other fields that are determined by true authenticity can learn from the music world. If you could interview any author, living or dead, who would it be? A few authors of books that have really moved me come to mind. I've really been moved by Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. And I would hope to talk to him about how we can spread nonviolent communication to the world. Because as you were talking about Twitter earlier, Twitter is a, Twitter is where the Western intelligentsia comes to fight. It's where the, <laughs> the battle of the new ideas are formed. And it's uh, in terms of conversational decorum, it's absolute dumpster fire. And so some nonviolent communication would, would help us have much better conversation. And another author I would have on is Robert Persig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Lila. And I've been tremendously inspired by that book. I've, I've come to return or reread that book. And I would love to talk to him about how he sees the world today. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? That yeah. was moving. Yeah. Who's the best long-form technology writer? Ben Thompson is the easy, easy answer. I think that Alex Danko is just phenomenal. I think that if you haven't seen Alex Danko's work on his new website, on the Snippets blog, and on, on his even old blog in 2013, he had this post predicting that Slack would beat Dropbox. He's, he's a phenomenal writer. I would, I would check him out. Slack would beat Dropbox. Are those two totally different products? Yes, but Dropbox was trying to be the sort of the connective tissue, and they thought they could do that through files, and Slack via, via messaging and, and chat was able to, to do it better. And so it took some of their growth. What's your favorite Robert Greene book? It's been a while since I read Robert Greene. Do you read his books or do you just listen to his podcast interviews? I I do read his books. I read 48 Laws of Power and I read Mastery. And I would say Mastery was was probably my favorite. I'm always intrigued by, by people who are trying to study how great people have done so well. Ben Kaznoka works at your fund. He's also famous for co-writing two books with Reed Hoffman that are quite good. What have you learned about, and maybe you haven't learned anything about this, but 
the collaborative writing process. He because he wrote these books collaboratively with with Reed Hoffman. I'm curious. Do you have any understanding for how he does this collaborative process, or anything else you learned from Ben Kaznoka? I've learned so many things from, from Ben Kaznoka. Ben is a phenomenal communicator. I think one of the things people can learn from Ben Kaznoka is that the power of partnering with someone really amazing early on in your career, someone who's you know twelve steps ahead of you, and saying, "Hey." I was dedicating myself previously to building my own brand and my own learnings, but I'm going to spend a two or three year period focused on building your brand. I remember in this blog post, 10,000 hours uh, I spent with Reed Hoffman that Ben has, he talked about how he created an entire deck for how Reed could optimize his life in in all areas from technology to philanthropy to politics to his personal life. If you do that for someone and it's compelling, they bring you onto their chief of staff position for for a few years. And then after that, they'll likely invest in your next thing. And having that experience really propelled Ben, you know, much further than he would have prior. And so I think one of the main lessons I think people can learn from Ben's career is, is really, it might take a short term hit in your brand, you know, read uh, a lot of those ideas are, are reads, but you know, I bet Ben did a lot of the work. And so there might've been some times where Ben was saying, oh man, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work and I'm not building my own brand, but having the lessons that he learned through the Reed experience and Reed support throughout is tremendous. And so I recommend young people to follow that path. Unless you just want to build your own startup, you go do that too. <laughs> That's fine. Who's the best technology journalist? I think Antonio Garcia Martinez. Ooh, good answer is a fantastic writer, fantastic thinker. I really enjoyed Chaos Monkeys. I think it's the it's the closest thing to Hunter S. Thompson meets Michael Lewis of uh, of Silicon Valley. I think he really gets it. He's he's not f- shy to be critical of of technology. He's not shy to be critical of journalism, and I think that sort of nuanced, truly independent thinker is is what we need in journalism. We need to crowdfund Antonio Garcia Martinez starting a podcast. Yes, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> a few questions about VC to wrap up. Building a VC firm requires hiring people, obviously. How does the war for talent in venture compare to the war for talent that startups have? You know, it's interesting. There was this period where when Keith Raboy joined Founders Fund a few years ago, where people were saying, we're asking whether is venture capital going to look like the NBA free agency? You know, we're going to have Kevin Durant leave Golden State and go to Brooklyn Nets. And the Short answer is no, <laughs> because GP vesting schedules are so long that it's so difficult for, for people to leave that much money. At the same time, the answer is also yes, because it's easier and easier to, to raise a fund today. And so I think no in the sense of inter-VC firm, probably harder, harder to do. The key was sort of unique situation. You saw Sarah Tavel leave to benchmark. If the Lakers want to pick you up and you were at the, you know, Utah Jazz, maybe, maybe do that. Not to compare, you know, Greylock is a world-class firm as well. You could say it's arguably just as good as Benchmark, but you get the idea. But it's easier and easier to start a firm these days. And so traditionally you saw people, you know, Sarah Tavel spent six years at Bessemer building up her chops, building up her craft. There was this real professional VC track. And a lot of people are saying, you know what, screw that. I'm going to just raise a fund right now. I'm going to build a following on Twitter. I'm going to raise a $3 million micro fund. I'm going to prove I can do it. And then I'm going to raise a much bigger fund and institutionalize from there. And it, I mean, it'd be interesting. I, I 10 of my friends that I supported them build nano funds this, this past year where they wouldn't have done it otherwise. Some of them are operators who wouldn't have had the capital to, to do so. And others were people who were trying to get principal jobs, didn't even get them. 
but were able to to raise their own funds. So the war for talent in VC, it's harder and harder to get young aspiring investors when it's so appealing to be able to start a fund off the back. That strategy of raising micro fund with the goal of parlaying up from there, is that a playbook that can be followed today? Like who can follow that playbook today? And what does that playbook actually look like in practice? In the late 2000s, we saw First Round, we saw Floodgate, we saw Uncork, formerly Softech, Jeff Clavier, and we saw a number of others who started with the original micro funds, the OG seed funds, micro seed funds, become $200 million vehicles. A lot of them have chosen to stay there. They don't want to play up in the, in the Series A game. And then today, 10 years later, we're seeing a new class of, of people who are saying, hey, we'll take the, the pre-seed round with, as, as you know, everything's moved back to stage and starting you know, $10 million vehicles, $5 million vehicles, $1 million vehicle. And they're able to bootstrap off of their you know, family, friends, other VCs who are supporting them. And the question for these firms in terms of can they bulk up is can they get institutional support? It's one thing to get a VC or family or friend. It's another thing to get an endowment, a pension fund, a fund of funds, a family office. These are old boy networks for most part. These are very hard to get in touch with. They're very hard to build relationships with. They don't like to take a lot of risks. And so it's a really steep challenge. I wonder of, of the ones I've, I've been involved with or seen, if, if there's 10 of them, maybe one will have a fund three that's you know $50 million because it takes a decade to build a track record. So you need to get lucky and hope that you're in the, the next cruise or next you know plaid, which is sold today for $5 billion. But even plaid was, was 10 years in. So you need to build a not only a track record fast, but a defensible asset. A person who's done a phenomenal job of that is Jason Lemkin at Saster. He's built an empire of media, events, content, and just definitively owns owns the category. I've long said, if you're trying to build a microfund today, do Saster for X, pick digital health, pick whatever sector you're an expert in, more niche, the better, and go across that vertical. Say, I'm going to own all of the companies who are building in food tech, or I'm going to own what Brian Frank is doing. Rap that. battles. Rap battles, yes, absolutely. Huge, huge market. <laughs> I'll be involved. I'll be a venture partner. Last question. Yeah. What early assumption did you have about managing a venture firm that you now realize is incorrect? I think all the good things, or a lot of the good things that people say about the job are true. It's incredibly intellectually stimulating. You get to build great relationships. You're always learning. It's not as stressful as founding a company. It's one of the best jobs in the world. At the same time, I want to splash some, some cold water. Running a firm is very boring. There's lots of legal and financial and accounting and a lot of back office stuff that it's really a lot of minutiae that's very boring and time intensive. And at the end of the day, I think what people don't realize is that it's a financial services job. People like to think that, oh, it's I'm coaching entrepreneurs and I'm getting involved and I'm changing company direction. And maybe you are, but at the end of the day, you're trying to make money for your limited partners. And some investors get disillusioned. They, they were building companies, they were in the thick of it. But at adventure, that's just that's just not your thing. And so you might want to do that, but it might not be in your interest. It might be a company that's that's struggling. You you have to say, hey, I have to focus on this other company. And so for now that we're seeing all these builders come into venture, I think there is a mental switch that has to take place that it's it's a financial services job. I think the other thing that it's worth realizing is venture partnerships are your family in the sense that you're with them forever. It's much harder to to get out of them. And venture is just a long term game. So you could find, you start something with co-founders, split six months later, 
venture. And I really, it's really hard. You want to think very carefully about how you get involved. And I'm very lucky to have people who I share values with, but I also have a lot of fun with. Also, product, you know, it, it's just a long-term game. Product Hunt was able to start and be sold within a three-year process. All ups and downs, the whole journey, three years. We're almost four years into building Village Global. And a lot of people don't even know we exist yet. Like we're just starting, just getting off the ground. And to build a great venture firm takes a decade, maybe two decades. And so you got to be in it for the long haul. Eric Torenberg, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. 